So this morning, um, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Rob. I'm the, the lead pastor here at Citizens Church, and we are working our way through the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27 is where we'll be. Mark's in the New Testament. You see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the New Testament starts about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. So if you have a physical Bible, that is where you'll find it. And before we get going, um, there's a term called Protestant. Now we, as a church, we are a Protestant church. That differentiates us from the Roman Catholic Church. So the church historical has... Um, consistently looked back at the scriptures here and gathered their faith and practice around the scriptures. There was a time in the 16th century where the church seemed to be going a different direction. And there were some who protested against that. That's where you get the term Protestant. And they tried to reform the church and break off from the Roman Catholic Church because they felt like the Roman Catholic Church was no longer preaching the, the faith once delivered to the saints. And so this term Protestant, I'm going to share a couple times, but before I share that word, I wanted to describe what it is. It differentiates us from the Roman Catholic Church. So on October 16th, 1555, about 40 or so years after this, this Protestant Reformation really started to kick off, two friends met. The first was named Hugh Latimer. They met on the north side of Oxford, England, and Hugh Latimer, for years, was a zealous Catholic priest. And he wrote this about himself. He said, I was as obstinate a papist as any was in England, insomuch that when I should be made Bachelor of Divinity, my whole oration was against Philip Melanchthon, who was Martin Luther's right-hand man. Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation. So this man was so much of a zealous Catholic priest that his whole studies were to combat the right-hand man of the guy who started the Protestant Reformation. He was so zealous to combat that teaching. And then one day, a man named Thomas Bilney approached Hugh Latimer, and he just asked if he could share his Protestant faith with him. Hugh Latimer, being reasonable, said, sure, you can share your faith with me. And soon after, the arrows that Latimer was pointing at the, Roman, or at the Protestant faith, he gathered those up and began to point them back toward the Roman Catholic Church. He became convinced of the Protestant faith. J.C. Ryle, a great author, wrote this about Hugh Latimer. He said, No one of the Reformers probably sowed the seeds of Protestant doctrine so widely and effectually among the middle and lower classes as Latimer. This man who was a zealous Catholic priest was persuaded by someone who just said, I just want to share my faith with you. And this man who was ardently attacking those who broke off from the Roman Catholic Church now is the one that J.C. Ryle says probably had the, the widest and most effective impact on the middle and lower classes. Then Queen Mary I came to power. And if you haven't heard of Queen Mary I, maybe you've heard her by her other name, Bloody Mary. So she so passionately persecuted those who went against the Roman Catholic Church that there was a lot of bloodshed, a lot of death. She came to power, and she put Latimer in prison in London. That's friend number one. Friend number two, Nicholas Ridley. He was about 20 years younger than Latimer, but he too was a Catholic priest, and he was one of the brightest minds 
in England. So bright, in fact, that he memorized the entire New Testament. Not just memorized it, memorized it in Greek. His brother is bright. Okay. Wildly bright Catholic priest. And he, as time went on, eventually also became convinced of the Protestant faith. So he left the Roman Catholic Church, and his abilities took him from one notable position to another all throughout England, eventually landing him in London, where, once Queen Mary took rule, she put him in prison as well. And so now these two individuals who don't know each other, know of each other but don't know each other, are in prison. They've never met. But on October 16th, 1555, yesterday, marked the 466th anniversary of this, they met. And they met at the stake as they were being prepared to be burned. And here's what happened. As they were being tied to the stake, each of these friends now began to pray for each other. And then they began to encourage each other. Ridley, the younger, said this, Be of good heart, brother. He's saying this to Latimer. Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. And as the bundle of sticks caught fire beneath them, Latimer now had his turn to encourage the younger, Ridley. He says this, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. So as these two brothers are going to the stake, they're encouraging each other, the younger first, and then the older, saying, play the man, stick to the faith. And then these two, after, after facing their death, three years later, they don't get to see this, not on this side of glory, but three years later, Bloody Mary, Queen Mary I, died, and she passed her kingdom. The way that the monarchy works, you pass it to the closest heir. Closest heir just so happened to be her half-sister Elizabeth, who was a Protestant. And the Protestant Reformation continued to burst, and that candle that was initially lit by Latimer and Ridley turned into a torch. Now the question for us this morning, the reason I share that extended story, is because these two, two brothers are facing their death, and yet they have great confidence. So what is it about them, what is it that they know that leads to this great confidence? How can we have a great confidence like them? And I would submit to you that it was at least two things. They have a knowledge of who God is, so they're willing to go to the stake because they know who God is now. And second, they have great confidence in the promised future. They know who God is, and they have great confidence in a promised future future. And so this morning, as we look at the passage, I hope that we will see that a deep knowledge of who God is, that he is God of the living, as Luke read, that that understanding will drive us to a deep confidence in the future, a deep confidence for the future. And so this morning, as we continue our our march through Mark, we've been saying that Mark, the consistent theme has been God restoring his wayward people. And just as a brief recap, we've seen Jesus, we see him in this passage being tested, and we've seen this before. Similar to military attacks where they bring wave after wave after wave before the enemy can really regroup, they bring another wave and hope that that will break them down. 
Jesus is seeing wave after wave of attack. In Mark 10, we saw the Pharisees bring him a question regarding divorce. In Mark 11, we saw a question regarding his authority that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders brought him. And then earlier in this chapter, Mark 12, we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians come to him with a question about taxes. And now we see yet again another wave of attack against his ministry. And we see the Sadducees bringing this question about marriage and resurrection. Now this passage, the way that I see it, is broken up into two sections primarily. And you can see the two bullets in your, in your bulletin. The first being a misinformed confidence, and the second being a well-informed confidence. So we're talking about confidence this morning. How can we have the type of confidence that Latimer and Ridley had as they faced persecution, as they faced their death? Now we see in this passage a misinformed confidence and a well-informed confidence. And so as we get into those two passages, or those two portions of the text, let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift to be able to gather here as a church. Thank you for brothers and sisters that gathered and remind each other of the gospel just with our presence, remind each other of the hope that we have that is found in Christ. God, we are grateful for faithful brothers and sisters from the past that we can look back to as encouragement. We ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would equip us to live faithfully as they did. We ask that that would be rooted in what we see in your word, that we would see it clearly this morning not only where our confidence should be, but also, and most importantly, the gospel. Help me speak clearly. I'm a fallen man, imperfect man, so Lord, please, in my imperfect speech, allow your gospel to be made clear. Lord, we pray for other churches that are doing this very thing this morning. Think of the Bridge Church in Wynn, Arkansas. Thank you for their encouragement to us. God, we ask that you would encourage them, that they would continue to reach people in a tough area, that the gospel would be proclaimed, that they would see fruit. Pray for Providence Church here in Westerville. Thank you for their faithful ministry to continue to proclaim the gospel. And God, thank you for Proclamation Church in Mount Vernon, where we ask that you would help them, Lord, help them see fruit. Lord, in practical things, help them meet their financial needs. Lord, thank you for these brothers and sisters that we get to preach the gospel alongside. Thank you that we're not alone this morning for faithful outposts all throughout our city, throughout our state, throughout our country, and throughout the world that are proclaiming this gospel. Lord, we are just coming alongside. We ask that we would do that faithfully this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first portion of this passage, titled Misinformed confidence. And so we see this group, the Sadducees, coming to Jesus. We've talked about the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, all these people coming. And now we see the Sadducees. So who are the Sadducees? Who are these people? Well, a little bit of information regarding the Sadducees. So remember last week we mentioned the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is essentially the Supreme Court of Israel. It's got all the religious leaders, and there's a group of 70 of them, plus the high priest, so it's a total of 71. 
They come from different religious backgrounds, but this is essentially the Supreme Court of Israel, the religious Supreme Court. Now, the Sanhedrin, or excuse me, the Sadducees are the most notable party in that group. So all the temple worship, the Sadducees oversee that. The Sadducees have the most to lose if Jesus' ministry is successful. And so it's fitting that they would save them for one of the last waves. You don't send your, your strongest in necessarily right from the get-go, but if the earlier ones don't work, then you bring the hammer in. So the Sadducees are meant to be the hammer. Now, some of the things that they believed were different than the Pharisees, different than the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Sadducees actually butted heads a lot in their theological opinions. So the Sadducees believed that there was no resurrection. They believed there was no resurrection. There was no afterlife. They did not believe in angels or, or demons. They only believed that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, were the divine words of God. And then further, they did not believe that, that God was sovereign over all things. So they felt like there was a lot of autonomy with the individual when it comes to discerning what the future would be. And in addition to that, they did not believe that there would be any resurrection, afterlife, and they did not believe in any kind of spiritual realm where angels or demons would be. And they derived all of this from the first five books. Those are the only books that they would affirm as divine words of God. To the contrary, Pharisees, which we saw last week, they did believe in resurrection. They did believe in the afterlife. They did believe in angels and demons, and they believed in the sovereignty of God over his creation. And then in addition to that, they believed that the Torah and the prophets and the writings were the word of God, essentially the whole Old Testament. So we see a difference already there. Now the Sadducees come in, and they bring this argument before Jesus. And they're talking about this, this thing called leveret marriage. Now what is leveret marriage? Okay, so this idea that you see the brother marrying the widow of his deceased brother, this was, it served a couple purposes. So the first one is that it was meant to continue on the name of the deceased brother. But second, it was meant to protect the widow because there weren't programs, social programs or government programs at that time to protect those who might have been lower income or who might have been more vulnerable. And so you think a, a woman who was married who then loses her husband and doesn't have any children to watch over her, she's incredibly vulnerable. And so this practice of leveret marriage, which we see in Deuteronomy 25, if you want to read about it, but it was meant to continue on the name so that the nation of Israel would not dwindle, but then also it was meant to protect the widow. And so this argument that they bring is about this law that everyone is aware of, and this argument, Sinclair Ferguson points out, is probably the one that young Sadducees, little schoolboy-aged Sadducees, are probably throwing at their peers who want to be Pharisees. Say, oh, you Pharisees, you, want, you believe in the resurrection. Well, how about this? Let's say there's a woman who dies and loses her husband, and then his brother, and then her, their brother, their brother. Let's say there's seven brothers, and none of them provide kids. At the resurrection that you Pharisees believe in, Whose wife will she be? She was married to five or to seven. Whose wife? It was a, a thing called a reductio ad absurdum. It's an argument that is so, so reductionistic that it gets to the absurd to make the point. 
And so they're trying to make this point to their theological opponents that you believe this thing called resurrection? Okay, you also believe what Moses said about leveret marriage, right? So how does that work? Let's, let's take this to the nth degree, and we'll make our point that resurrection does not exist. So this was their go-to argument. And what we see in the passage is this misinformed confidence. They have this confidence in this argument, because logically speaking, their understanding of not only leveret marriage, but also of the afterlife and resurrection, these things can't compute. Now, what they don't understand is what marriage was meant to point to. What they don't understand is what the resurrection really is. So they believe that marriage is eternal. The marriage covenant is eternal. So if there is a quote-unquote resurrection that they're arguing against, but if there is one, they say, then she made seven eternal marriage covenants. Who's, who's she going to be with? And then when it comes to the resurrection, they just flat out don't believe it. So this marriage covenant that they have a misunderstanding of, what we need to understand is that the marriage covenant is meant to point to a greater covenant. It's meant to reflect a greater thing that happens. So in marriage, two who are separated come together as one. And now we see in the gospel this new covenant, two who are separated, us separated from God, a greater separation come together as one. The reason the marriage covenant it does not last forever is because it reflects a greater covenant that does last forever. The Sadducees didn't understand this. Now, some here, when you think that marriage may not last forever, that may be devastating news for some. It may be in a wonderful marriage. For some, it might be comforting news. Regardless of the side of the spectrum you find yourself on, the primary thing that we need to see here is that our identity must not be found in a temporary covenant. Our identity must first and primarily be found in an eternal covenant, in the one whom we have been united with eternally. It must be in Christ. So they didn't understand the marriage covenant, but they also didn't understand the resurrection they didn't recognize that the resurrection was actually a fulfillment of a promise. We've talked about it before, but the resurrection, it was essentially when you go to the store and you buy something, you get a receipt confirming that this has been paid in full. Resurrection was the receipt of righteousness. God did accept the sacrifice through Jesus because he was perfectly righteous. And so this resurrection affirmed the promises in the Old Testament where they were talking about righteousness leads to life. So the question this morning, as we pull some application points from this first portion, is, Christian, where is your identity found? Is your identity found in Christ? Which covenant, for those who are married, is your hope in? Is it in a marriage covenant, or is it in the new covenant? And then if you find yourself as someone who is, is not married and you're desiring marriage. That's a good and wonderful thing to desire. Do not let that desire become the thing that you find your identity in. Non-Christian, are you living like a Sadducee? Sadducees did not believe there's any resurrection, that believe in any afterlife. And so therefore, 
are you living as if there is no afterlife, as if there will be no judgment? Are you living for yourself? And if there is no resurrection, then you have nothing to fear. However, if there is a resurrection, you will face judgment. The question is, do you have the perfect righteousness required for resurrection? Church this morning, one of the things that we consistently say is that we gather for the sake of reminding one another of this gospel. We live, we serve, we worship, knowing the fact that we will face judgment. There's a phrase that theologians like to use called quorum deo. It's before the face of God. They say, live each moment of your life before the face of God, knowing that every action, every word, every thought will be put on display for judgment. And then we also, as a church, need to remind each other of Christ's righteous covering. Because here's the thing. Even though the, the charge is to, to live before the face of God, even though we are called to live in such a way that is consistent with the knowledge that we have that there will be judgment, that we will uh, be, all, everything that we've done will be put on display, we need to be reminded that for every time we fall short, we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. That's the good news. That we can enter into the presence of God because and only because Christ has lived the righteous life that was required to enter into the presence of a perfectly righteous and holy God. And if we are covered with that, then we can enter into his presence. The Sadducees didn't understand that. The Sadducees saw the marriage covenant as eternal, and they saw the resurrection as something that was not even going to take place. And Jesus points this out. So the Sadducees' confidence was based on misinformation. However, Jesus corrects them with a well-informed confidence. This is the second point in your bulletin. So Jesus tells the Sadducees, look at me in verse 24. He tells them, is this not the reason you are wrong? He gives two reasons. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. They don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. Now this is a big, audacious claim that Jesus is making to these Sadducees. Because we said earlier, they're the most notable members of the Sanhedrin. There's no one with greater authority than them. There's no one with greater notoriety than them. These people are a big deal. And so when Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures, that's offensive because they claim that they do know the scriptures. They know the Torah and they know it extremely well. And he says, you also know the power of God. Well, these, these members are the highest members of the Sanhedrin. Their, their whole vocation is power. And so when he says you don't know the scriptures or the power of God, that's a big deal. The Pillar of New Testament commentary said that the audacity of Jesus' accusation of the Sadducees would be like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing of finance. Scripture, the Torah, and power, the Sanhedrin, were precisely the Sadducees' stock in trade, the two matters in which they majored. So this claim that Jesus is making is a big one. He says, one, they don't know the scripture. So the scriptures available at that time, the Old Testament. So the 39 books you'll see in your Old Testament were broadly available. And so when Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures, not only is he saying that you don't really understand the Torah, 
But he's saying there's other scriptures as well that you just don't know that affirm this resurrection. He tells them that they're wrong. Look, you don't have to turn here, but Isaiah 26, 19. These are all Old Testament passages that Jesus would be referring to. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. You hear those resurrection themes there that Isaiah mentions. Daniel 12, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Job 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So we see these Old Testament passages that are affirming this resurrection. However, we've said that the Sadducees, they only affirm the first five books. And those three verses that we just pointed out were not in the first five books. So the Sadducees may hear that and they may say, hey, look, that's just not scripture. And so now Jesus, in his kindness, addresses that. He meets them where they are. And he argues on their grounds. So in verse 25, he says, For when they rise from the dead. So he doesn't give them any wiggle room. He's affirming the resurrection. He's saying when they rise from the dead, not if. He's saying when they rise from the dead, which is clever. But then he says they'll be like angels in heaven. Now, there can be a ton of debate on that. But I think the plain reading of the text is that in glory... We will be like angels, not because we will be angels, but because the angels did not marry. They didn't enter into marriage covenants. Like the angels, we're not going to enter into marriage covenants. Okay, that's, Don't read too, too far into that. You can go down a huge rabbit trail into all kinds of different opinions. But I think the plain reading of the text is that we'll simply just be like the angels because we won't be entering into other covenants because we will be united to Christ in an eter- eternal new covenant. And then verse 26, look with me there. Jesus says, and as for the dead being raised, so now he's addressing the resurrection. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Now, earlier in verse 19, they mentioned Moses wrote to us. And so Jesus says, okay, you don't know the scriptures because you're only holding to these first five books. There's all kinds of evidence for the resurrection elsewhere. He says, so you don't know the scriptures, but now he's going back to the first five books and he's further making the point that you still don't know the scriptures, even if you look at those first five books. You guys are talking about Moses? All right, let's talk about Moses. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him? Now, when he says the passage about the bush, he's referring to Exodus 3, when God meets Moses in the burning bush. It's right before he tells him about his plan to to lead his people in a great exodus out of Egypt. And what does he say to Moses? He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, this is what we were talking about in our class, in our men's class. We were talking about the importance of reading the Bible carefully. There's one word there that makes all the difference in the world. And that word is am. He said, I am the God of your father. He didn't say, I was the God of your father. This is hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died. He's talking to Moses. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, 
I am. So Jesus is making the point that when God says, I am, he's saying, I am the God of these men who died hundreds of years ago. I am still their God. They are still living. I'm not God of the dead. I'm God of the living. He's making this point to Moses, and then Jesus uses this to make the point to the Sadducees that they do not know the Scriptures. Because if they did, they would see in the first five books that the Torah affirms the resurrection. But he also says they don't know the power of God, and we'll be quicker on this one. But Genesis 18 is when God is talking to Abraham and to Sarah, and he tells them that they're going to have a son. And they're like nearly 100 years old. Okay, so the idea of having a son at that point seems crazy. Sarah laughs, and God says in response, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. So when the Sadducees bring this marriage idea and this resurrection idea to Jesus and say, hey, we're going to try to, try to trap him by pointing out these flaws of the understanding of the law and leverate marriage and the resurrection, and Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God, He's making the point that, one, they don't know the first five books. If they did, they would see that God is God of the living, not the dead. But then, two, they would also understand that there is nothing too hard for the Lord. If there seems to be implied resurrection, it's not too hard for God to resurrect, to bring back the dead to life. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. And so because Jesus knows the Scriptures unlike the Sadducees, because he knows the Scriptures, he can confidently stand against his opponents. He can stand against the Sadducees right here. He can stand against the Pharisees and the Herodians in previous passages. He can stand against the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he can stand against Satan, the way that he did in the desert when Satan came to tempt him before his ministry really started to get going. And Satan threw Scripture at him. But Jesus had a firm understanding of Scripture, so he was not led astray. So because Jesus knows the scriptures, he can endure persecution with confidence. This morning, brothers and sisters, do you know the scriptures? Are you spending time in the scriptures? Are you, do you read God's word? Do you meditate on it? Are you memorizing it? Are you getting together with others throughout the week to discuss it? These are good practices. Hey, brother, what have you, what you, what you been reading? What are you getting out of it? What's jumping out to you? What's challenging you? Meet. Have coffee. Get breakfast together. Some of you guys do that. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful thing. Keep doing that. Continue to encourage each other to get into the scriptures. Martin Luther, in commenting on this, says, Nothing helps more powerfully against the devil, the world, the flesh, and all evil thoughts than occupying oneself with God's word, having conversations about it, and contemplating it. Nothing helps better than God's word. So when a coworker or a family member or a fam or a, a someone that you've been trying to meet up with, they challenge your faith, where is your confidence? What do you go to? Are the scriptures your source of confidence? Or is it a man-made argument? Where is your confidence? Families, you have the opportunity to prioritize family worship to husband, wife, get into the Bible together. Have the opportunity to do that with your kids. It does not have to be a 30-minute, 60-minute, 
Bible lesson to where you're going real deep and pulling out all the redemptive out. You don't, you, don't you don't have to get that deep. Just make it a practice to talk about the word with your kids, with your spouse. And trust that the ordinary day in, day out, over the course of 5, 10, 15 years is going to make a big impact. Non-Christian in the room, if you're here, thank you for being here. But what is your confidence placed in? Is it a man-made argument or is it something that has stood the test of times? Is it something transcendent? Those of you who are hurting this morning or suffering, hear this from Martin Luther again. He says, you have the Apostle Paul who shows to you a garden or paradise which is full of comfort. It is thus very true that we shall find consolation only through the scriptures, which in the days of evil call us to the contemplation of our blessings, either present or to come. The resurrection, if you are suffering this, this morning, the resurrection is a blessing worth contemplating. He says to contemplate our blessings, either present or to come. This is our hope that we would be brought back to a resurrected body, a glorified body the way that Christ was. We'd be united with our Savior and our Master for all eternity. We need to remind one another of this. We need to take this hope to others. It can't just stay in this room. We've got to take it to coworkers. We've got to take it to family members. We've got to take it to friends. We've got to take it to those who are far from Christ. We have a responsibility. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are placed in unique scenarios We're wired in unique ways so that we can bring this gospel to those who need to hear it. We will be resurrected. This resurrection that we're talking about, it's guaranteed. Jesus makes it very clear that the Sadducees were wrong. He says, you are wrong. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. The scriptures affirm it and the power of God can make it happen. He said the resurrection will happen. The question for us this morning is, will we be resurrected to life or will we be resurrected to condemnation? Death is our final enemy. And because of our own sin, we have earned death. The wages of sin is death. No one in this room is free of sin. We've all earned death. However, as we read in that first song, it was finished upon that cross. Verse 4 says, Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. But the Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Yes, He rose that we would be free indeed. Free from every plan of darkness, free to live and free to love. Death is dead and Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. There is a resurrection coming. The question is, will we be resurrected to life or will we be resurrected to condemnation? And Romans 8.1 makes it very clear that for all who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. This resurrection is greater than we could ever hope or imagine. Sometimes when you think about eternity, it can be overwhelming. What am I going to do for eternity? How am I supposed to enjoy that after 10 billion years to know that there's 100 billion and then 100, 100 billion? How am I supposed to really enjoy that for? Like, what could I possibly do? James Edwards addresses this. He says, God's power to create and restore life bursts the limits of both logic and imagination. 
He says the glorious realities of the life to come can no more be accommodated to the pedestrian routines of earthly life than can butterflies be compared to caterpillars. He says this, present earthly experience is entirely insufficient, entirely insufficient to forecast divine heavenly realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto on the Grand Canyon at sunset. We cannot even begin to imagine the glories of this resurrection. And because God is God of the living, we can know that there is, in fact, life after death. He's God of the living, not God of the dead. And if we are in Christ, then we can have great hope for the future. To have the confidence that Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley had, we must know who God is. The way that we do that is by knowing the scriptures. Jesus' indictment against the Sadducees was that they don't know the scriptures. We need to know what they say, and then we'll be, have great, we'll be able to have great confidence in what they say about the resurrection, that there is life and life eternal, that there is life in Christ, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And the reason for that is because we, as human beings, we have sin. God is entirely separate from us. No sin can dwell with him. But Jesus coming in the form of a man means that he can perfectly represent mankind to God. And because he's God in the flesh, he can per- perfectly represent God to mankind. He's the only one who can stand in the gap. And he came, and he's the only one who has not committed any sin. So therefore, if we are in Christ, we can have hope that all the blessings of righteousness that get poured out onto him will be poured out onto us. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is the first fruits. There's more to come. There's more raising from the dead to come. But it only happens for those who are in Christ. The only way that you get to be raised to life and life eternal, life united to God, is through Christ. Otherwise, you will be raised, but it will be to condemnation because your sin needs to be paid for. God is perfectly holy. If he overlooked sin, then he wouldn't be just. For a judge to let someone guilty go, it's an unjust judge. God is not an unjust judge. He sees sin, and you can trust that he will address it. The question is, will it be addressed in Christ, or will it be addressed through you? If you are in Christ, your sin has been taken away and you will be seen as perfectly righteous by God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news that we see in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for addressing the error of the Sadducees in their understanding of resurrection, their understanding of marriage. Thank you for the gift of marriage for showing us what covenant union looks like. And thank you for the greater covenant union that we have in Christ. Help us to find our identity there. Now, God, give us great hope. 
give us great confidence in the future resurrection that is to come. We look forward to that day. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.